0: Welcome to the AJP Heart and Circ Podcast. I'm Cara Hansel Keehan. Today we'll discuss a new study by Ruhana et al. titled Sex Differences in the Cardiac Stress Response Following SARS-CoV-2 infection of ferrets. This open access article was published October 18th, 2023 in the AJP Heart and Circ call for Papers on Cardiovascular Consequences of COVID. Joining us today are Associate Editor, Dr. Keith Brunt, authors Dr. Glenn Pyle and Dr. Allison Kelvin, and expert Dr. Susan Cheng. Let's get started. Keith?
1: Thanks, Kara. As you mentioned, Today, we're going to discuss this new publication. It's part of the special call on cardiovascular consequences of COVID, which includes the direct impact of SARS-CoV-2 virus. Our team at AJP are deeply concerned by the impact that SARS-CoV-2 virus and the COVID pandemic overall continues to have on the population and individual cardiovascular systems in terms of acute and long-term impacts. Moreover, there appears to be significant variation in risk to the cardiovascular system by sex, and age intersectionally. Here, the authors have helped to place some foundations in a preclinical model of infection to the direct exposure of SARS-CoV-2 and its impact on the myocardium of ferrets. They further identify that phosphokinase expression, normally associated with cardiac stress remodeling, is distinct by both time and sex effects, and that females show susceptibility to cardiac fibrosis. Despite nearly exact exposures, the inflammatory patterns, particularly with macrophage markers, CD68, in females and CD206 in males more so, though having similar levels of panleukocyte CD45, indicate that there are inherent sex and time effect differences in immune responses at the level of the myocardium. For example, ICAM-1 expression was progressive in elevation in males, but spiked then stepped down over time in females. This is intriguing for so many reasons, particularly as patients with long COVID often express symptoms not that dissimilar from heart failure, and there has been consistent short and long-term impacts on hemostability and endothelial functions, and this is of considerable concern. Today, we are fortunate to welcome here a party of field expertise and perspectives to discuss this paper, so let's dive in, shall we? I want to start off with you, Dr. Pyle. I have kind of a question of interest here for our listeners as to what really drove your questioning around the sex differences. And for those that may not be aware, why is there such a clinical concern for sex effects and the cardiovascular responses to SARS-CoV-2 exposure and the cardiovascular pathophysiology generally?
2: Thanks, Heath. So if we start with cardiovascular disease in in general, our research stems from the the recognition that there are clear sex differences comes with with cardiovascular disease. So for example, if we look at women, they have fewer heart attacks, but they're more likely to die uh, than a a man after a heart attack or, or to develop heart failure. Some of these increased risks are social. Women are less likely to be treated quickly or according to guidelines, but there is evidence that there's a significant biological component to these differences. What these differences are is hard to pinpoint because there's generally a lack of research looking at sex differences and and, uh, specifically with, with females in particular, looking at female patients or having female lab animal models as well. With respect to SARS-CoV-2 exposure or or, or COVID, again, we see some interesting sex differences where males are more likely than females to die from the infection or during the infection itself, but females are more likely to develop uh, long COVID or these chronic conditions than males. And that's a rate, so it's not just simply that more females survive to develop long COVID. And then if you look, even amongst those who have long COVID, there are sex differences where females are more likely to report fatigue and chest pain and and males are more likely to have renal complications. So we see some pretty clear sex differences, both in cardiovascular disease and COVID outcomes. And unless we understand why these differences occur, it's very difficult to fix them, to come up with specific treatments that target the problems that are either unique to each sex or potentially some that are are common that would create a more effective uh, therapeutic target.
1: It's fascinating because it's all over social media. I mean, people are talking about long COVID. They're talking about changes in the variants of exposure from the early pandemic to the later pandemic. I want to just touch over to Dr. Kelvin really briefly to help set the stage for us as to why ferrets are a particularly uh, useful model in this context And could you tell us a little bit about the source of the virus and the strain or variant of SARS-CoV that was used in this study specifically, and maybe how that might compare to something I could get exposed to tomorrow?
3: So I think that's a really great question. You know, everybody wants to know why ferrets. It seems kind of out of left field. When we look back to SARS-1, which emerged in 2002 and spread into 2003, we didn't know where the virus came from at that point, and we didn't have an animal model to study it and there's a high case fatality rate. So it's really important to understand the pathogenesis of the disease caused by infectious SARS-CoV-1. So researchers started to look at all different animal models from mice and non-human primates and cats. And actually, ferrets were the first animal model to be found to be susceptible to SARS-CoV-1. So finally, when that was identified, researchers could go in and start evaluating. Evaluating one, why is this virus causing such severe disease? Two, start to test different antivirals and vaccines. So, right off the bat, ferrets were super useful for that virus. So, when SARS CoV 2 emerged, that was where my head went immediately is that we needed ferrets because of the similarity in the spike protein and the use of ACE2, which is the cellular receptor for SARS-CoV-2. But in between SARS 1 and SARS 2, I had also been using ferrets to study influenza pathogenesis. And they're considered, ferrets are considered to be the gold standard model for understanding influenza disease. We can pick apart different strains, you know, disease caused by different strains of influenza and subtypes such as H1N1 and H3N2. So I had become really an expert in the ferret model for respiratory. Virus infection and evaluating vaccines. And then more importantly, I had been using ferrets to pick apart sex and age-specific factors affecting disease. So um, we have ferrets, which we can leave intact, so not neutered and not spayed, so that they have full um, complement of sex hormones, and we can understand factors that are affecting disease after infection. So that's what I had been doing before SARS-CoV-2 emerged in between, again, SARS-1 and SARS-2. So when SARS-2 came out and we saw immediately that, as Glenn mentioned, males are more susceptible to severe disease during the acute period of COVID-19, I wanted to know what was going on. So I immediately turned to ferrets because of its history with In SARS-1, but also because I knew that I could get intact males and females and also aged ferrets to understand how age also factors into that. And so that was one of my initial studies. We infected ferrets with ancestral Wuhan virus, so the first version of SARS-CoV-2. And um, what we found is we infected males and females as well as aged males. And we found that, interestingly enough, males had a higher level of virus replicating in their respiratory tract compared to females. And this was exacerbated by age. So the aged males had even more virus being replicated in their respiratory tract. And this was paired with an impaired antiviral response. So we think this impaired or delayed antiviral response in aged males is responsible for allowing the virus to get to higher titers, which could also be folded in with why males and older males have worse disease. So this is important also from a public health standpoint, because perhaps having higher titers of virus, males can spread and shed more virus, causing more infections. So that was our initial, one of our initial studies that I was working on when I was gotten into contact with Glenn.
1: Now, Glenn, you're a molecular cardiologist. So you're used to working predominantly with preclinical animal models. Now, is this the very first time you were, you were challenged to work with ferrets and and not only ferrets, but working sort of at a at a physical distance from the level three facility where this exposure is happening. What, what, what kind of presents a unique challenge for somebody like yourself as a physiologist and a molecular physiologist and cardiologist to, to resolve some of these questions around what's happening to the heart.
2: Yeah. So it was my first time working with, with ferrets. So I had to get up to speed on, on some of their, their biology. So they, you know, they have different sex characteristics than some other animals in terms of cycling and things like that for the, the females. So we had to get up to speed on that and, and understand how that might come into play. I think the biggest barrier for us is because a lot of the stuff we do is on the molecular level and, and it's very precise, very small um, in terms of some of the changes you look for. We're used to looking for some more subtle changes with some fairly high-tech cardiology equipment, right? going in, doing cardiac cath, doing echoes, looking for you know small velocity changes and, and parameters like that. But because these animals are housed in a protected facility, which I think we all understand why that is, you can't roll in a bunch of machines and, and have some invasive procedures going on in, in there. So I think one of the biggest barriers for us was trying to understand some of the, the physiological changes, the biological changes, and, and trying to couple this to the, the molecular work that we wanted to do.
1: Yeah, I, I think this is something that we have to acknowledge and recognize is that we can't just jump in with the usual approach experimentally and just run with it. I mean, we're, we're dealing with the real original strain, as as Allison you pointed out, and that space and distance constraints that are forced by that force our hands to use only certain techniques and models, at least now. I mean, maybe there's something more we can discuss in future. Dr. Chang, Susan Chang, I, I want to get your impression. You, you've read this paper. I'd like to sort of get your sense of you know, as we start to build a fundamental understanding, and we are still building a fundamental understanding, particularly how this virus impacts the heart. What what were your sort of first impressions in, in the field as putting this study into context?
4: First of all, incredibly important work. You know, I think we as uh, clinicians, as well as researchers, are recognize exactly the things that Glenn and Nelson pointed out uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. During that very, very first surge, when we barely understood what was going on, The males were definitely sicker they were in the icu they were on the ventilators and the females were not as sick and it was the males who were getting myocarditis and not uh so much even if at all if you really tried to squint and count the numbers who were getting myocarditis but uh, you know just as was pointed out with respect to the after effects the longer term after effects it's the females who are developing you know pots which we think of as a you know neurocardiogenic syndrome so postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome and, you know, females are, again, as we point out, are, are more symptomatic with these vague symptoms that do have something to do, we think, with some real cardiac, cardiovascular pathophysiology, that at the end of the day, it's all, you know, virus and inflammation and immune-mediated. And we haven't ever seen anything like this before. These effects, they're clearly cardiovascular, and they clearly are temporal, time-dependent, age-dependent uh, sex differences. So when the study came out, I was really excited to look at it because we we need a lot of ongoing work in this field. And we saw some at the beginning and we've seen some throughout, but we need these types of very detailed, comprehensive studies. And, and one of the things that this reminded me of is if you even just put virus aside for a second, virus aside as an inflammatory, harmful exposure, and you think of the stress response in particular, we've known for a long time that there's sex differences in the response to stress that invoke measurable immune inflammatory uh, responses. So for instance, pre pubertal females and males, when they're in the ICU for an asthma attack, the females have higher levels of C-reactive protein, CRP. And we see inflammatory markers actually measurably elevated in females compared to males in the setting of other responses. Again, putting the, the viral exposure aside just for a bit, in terms of the female versus male cardiac response to certain types of emotional Or or other uh, stress triggers that are probably interacting with the neurohormonal system as well as um, the intrinsic immune inflammatory defense response. Females are much more likely to develop uh, stress cardiomyopathy or Takotsubo. And we're now, you know, longitudinal studies looking at the degree to which microvascular dysfunction is more prominent, as, as Len mentioned earlier, in females. When we think about the types of patients who present with what appears to be grand variety, you know, myocardial. Infarction at the outset, but when you look, it's it's not the classic pathophysiology. It's microvascular disease, and those are the individuals, the females predominantly, who go on to we think there's a connection there, develop heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. So there's there have been the sex differences all along pre pandemic that we've been trying to study and grapple with, and so when a study like this comes along and looks specifically at SARS CoV two as as the exposure, which is you know intrinsically a viral exposure, but a very special one at that. It's really fascinating to see how this work in particular has been able to help us understand there there truly are sex differences in very specific immune inflammatory uh, responses that also differ by timing and by age so so all in all a uh, very, very important contribution that adds to what we continue to struggle to learn about what's going on here.
1: That's important to recognize you know that there is intrinsic immune medullary cells in the heart. And they're such a minority population, but they play such a big role in outcomes, particularly as we get older. Now, Glenn, you mentioned something earlier. I want to tie into what Dr. Chang was saying here. In the early days of the pandemic, it was obvious that males were suffering mortality at a greater rate. Now, what I'm hearing and seeing is more of a concern around long COVID. And now females and women are taking the brunt of that comorbidity what is your your take on how long we should be modeling some of these things? And given the study timeline that you already had, you saw something, I think, there that alludes to why that might be more susceptible in women. Do, do you have any thoughts around the long COVID syndrome, particularly in females, that you can maybe tie into your study here a bit?
2: Yeah, so we were seeing some, some changes during the infection period, that could potentially be long lasting. So, if you, that's the reason why we chose some of these these molecules. So, we chose GSK3, ERK12. These, these are molecules, they do respond to acute stressors, but they can also be activated or affected in ways that lead to long term issues. And so, we were seeing changes in these, in some of these molecules that are consistent or similar to what we see eventually in, in heart failure. I just want to be clear, we're not saying that the hearts were failing or that they were going to fail, but we're seeing some of the same stressors turned on very early. So, you know, as the virus certainly is is being cleared, um, you know, a sort of a I'll say a post-infection period or or a point where where if it were people, they would be getting better or feeling better. But we are starting to see the the laying of this this foundation. And I think that's an interesting next step, which is is this sustained for a period of time? Is this what leads to, to long COVID? Or does it lead to something else? Is it, you know, sort of the first domino to fall? And at what point can you still reverse this? So if we go another week, and it's still going up, is it too late to reverse it? Or can we still try and reverse some of these effects at at that time? So even though this was, was early, it was definitely not a long COVID study, we did not look at chronic outcomes, I feel like we, we have laid the foundation that might help us to better understand what happens in that longer term, the sort of the post-infection period where we see things like long COVID developing.
1: Now, remind me, because maybe, maybe you or, or Dr. Kelvin had actually looked at this. Was there any tracking that you planned for or incorporated into the study designed to look at viral particle loads in the heart or anywhere else in the organs
2: or bodies? I think that's a question for Allison because they did do that, I believe. So.
3: Yeah, we did RNA analysis or viral RNA analysis in extrapulmonary tissue. And what we found is basically it was spotty. So see some of the extrapulmonary tissue in some of the animals would be positive, whereas some, others were negative. And I can't exactly remember which is which at this moment, but it wasn't statistically significant to say this was always positive in our N of three. In a different study though, which we used hamsters, we did look in the extra pulmonary tissue and found something similar, except uh, maybe a bit more robust in the heart, as well as some other organs using hamsters. I can't remember if I said that. Also, interestingly, in that study, we found microthrombi In the heart, um, but these were all males. So I think other preclinical models might also be of interest to look at COVID nineteen and sex effects. One of our main limitations with the ferret model is that the ferrets only develop an upper respiratory tract infection; they're not able to be infected in the lungs. Whereas the Syrian hamsters, they can be infected in both the nasal turbinates as well as the lungs, which gives you a bit more of pathologies that would be more similar to humans. So something to potentially think about, which I also have a long-term hamster study over an, an entire year, and we're just in the middle actually of analyzing all the different organs. I won't go into too much of that, but some interesting data there.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's fascinating because clinically right now, there's there's two major papers reclassifying even how we describe myocardial infarction and, and hemorrhagic penetration. Presumptively, in SARS-CoV, you, you could expect that there's endothelial dysfunction. This is something that seems to happen. And, and Glenn, you, you actually mentioned that penetrance into humans show damage as far away as the kidneys. And we all know the cardiorenal axis is an imperative for pressure overload. And development of hypertension. So I'm curious what everybody's thoughts here, but maybe I'll let Glenn lead off. You know, how how much of this is directly cellular cardiomyocyte and how much of this is indirectly related to endothelial dysfunction and hyperplatelet activation and penetrance into the myocardium? What do you think sort of from a causative perspective, which, which leads us towards, you know, how we medically manage this? Do we see, do you see microvascular dysfunction or vascular deficits in this model, or is it just not the right model yet for that?
2: I'm not sure how much vascular damage is in this particular model. Um, I can um, let Alison answer that if if they've they've looked at that. But we do know that in general, SARS-CoV-2 or, or COVID, is, it has vascular involvement. There's a significant amount of of damage, and it's not localized to just the heart or just the lungs. It, it truly is systemic, and so. The ability to impact virtually all the systems of the body is is there just based on the vascular damage that you're you're going to see there. And then if you get into the more severe forms of COVID, where you have the the more I'll say robust immune response, and and you have the potential for the cytokine storm and, and things like that, we do know that in the heart those cytokines can be very damaging. We've seen it with other conditions, not just COVID here. So I, I think the ability for this to penetrate and and you know, reach all systems of the body is, is pretty significant, and we know that, uh, and we know there's multiple ways that it, it can get there. The virus doesn't have to get in and infect individual cells and kill them. It can do it indirectly through these other ways and, and do it in a very effective way.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. So, so it's not that we have necessarily a guarantee in long COVID either that the virus is, is latent and penetrant and hiding, so to speak, in sub Although So that could be a factor. But it's it's this knock-on effect, right, from cell to cell to cell, right, from everything from platelets, immune function, cytokine storms, the resolution phase. Now, that was a really interesting thing for me to see in your data, Glenn, is this disparity in the immunotyping, right? So we, we have this onset of hyperinflamed macrophage-like cells. And if you look at sort of the females, just taking CD68 as an example, it took seven days for the males to reach significance. The females were elevated at day two and then step down slowly, whereas the males sort of spiked and drop. And then we look at the resolving macrophages, C206, which is supposed to be indicative of resolution of inflammation. And here again, the pattern shows that the females are trying to resolve this faster. And so it, it draws into this question of my mind, like, is what we typically associate with female protection maybe offering some detriment in, in the signaling patterns themselves? What we classically associate with estrogen is protective. Might that be instigating too early a resolution phase. It was just striking to me that those the temporal ebb and flow of these cell types were were so different.
2: I think that's probably a question that Alison would be better suited to answer because they're the ones who did that sort of immune profiling there. So I think she would be better suited to answer that.
3: So Keith, I usually think of um, because. I look at sex differences after viral infection, you know, for in different models for SARS-CoV-2, but also for different viruses, and we know that there is a sex effect where females do have a tendency to be more inflammatory in their response compared to males. And This is why females are more susceptible to um, autoimmune diseases, and so I always thought that that was really interesting and perhaps why, you know, in this particular study, the females are clearing the virus faster. They have a great pro-inflammatory response as well as an antiviral response. But from what we know about female biology, as well as what I've seen, and I also have a long, long COVID human study, which is in preprint right now, where the females have trouble resolving their inflammatory response so I feel like that gets turned on quite quickly. The infection can be resolved, but there's difficulty turning that off. So what we see in in females who feel they have long COVID my human study compared to males is that the females have high levels that get even higher after their COVID-19 experience of GMCSF, as well as angiopoietin 2. So I don't know if that's of interest, but it's... Quite interesting to me in knowing that, you know, females are more skewed to this pro-inflammatory response as well as antiviral response, because we know that, you know, there's estrogen receptors on immune cells as well as inflammatory genes and antiviral genes on the X chromosome. This is probably why um, females are a bit more skewed this way, interestingly reflective in what we see with the COVID-19 experience.
1: I think it starts to paint a picture here, and and it leads us back into something that I think was important also to recognize, is when the males moved in one direction, the females moved in the opposite direction, almost in the same time. So if we take that sequelae, a molecular signaling pattern from the immune reaction, and we translate that back onto the myocardium, here, Glenn, I'm thinking specifically about the P62 expression pattern. You saw that in males, the early response was mostly to drop straight down, whereas in the females, it was to increase and persist. So this must have an implication then on how that myocardium functions and ultimately resolves some of the molecular patterns that it's swimming in. <laughs> can can you tell us a little bit about what you think is going on with that and, and maybe how that might be leading then to some of the fibrosis in females specifically later on?
2: with the P62 or because yeah. I, I, I think well we, we had a hypothesis, you know, so P62 can do a, a bunch of different things in, in, in the heart and respond in different ways. And the way it seemed to be responding in in the females Could indicate, at least one of our hypotheses was that there is some low level of virus that is retained within the heart uh, by virtual hijacking sort of this P62 system. And so that while the virus is, for all intents and purposes, cleared and and, and the effects appear to to go away, there are some ideas out there suggesting that, that the virus can use this system to remain there in very, very low levels and persist. And whether that creates sort of a low level of infection chronically that could lead to something like long COVID or whether it leaves reservoirs that could pop up to slightly higher levels later, we don't know. But it was consistent with what some other labs had had suggested and what we've seen with some other viruses in terms of hijacking the internal system, that that autophagy pathway that would normally be used to remove the virus, that SARS-CoV-2 and, and some other viruses, some other related viruses, actually take advantage of that system, use it to replicate and what I'll say in a very non-technical way, uh, basically hide uh, in, in the heart and, and, and stay there. Now, that's a bit of a, an extension for us. Like you know, there was it was a hypothesis that we're advancing. We do, we don't have data to suggest it. There are that there is virus there. You, you know, we certainly can't detect it, but it, it at least fit with some of the other models that have been been offered.
1: All I'm hearing is there's a need here to look at extracellular vesicles, uh, maybe in the plasma and how that's moving around. And it's a good reason to have such intersectional work between sort of molecular cardiologists thinking about the patterns of response with a virologist, immunologist thinking about what, you know, is drivers upstream of this. Dr. Chang, I want to come back to you here real quick to get your opinion on how might the field sort of better support these types of rapid observational characterization, foundation type approaches with intersectional, cardiovascular, virological, immunological, to be more proactive and help build a real good understanding of both the acute and the long COVID. You know, how do we approach this for the future? Because this is not the first cov virus I was scared when the first SARS-CoV-1 came and and then SARS-CoV-2 came. and, And So how do we as a field, in different fields, in silos, some ways, come together to sort of Build the capacity and the networks to address these questions, and everything from how the virus gets in to how it might persist to how we might detect in a liquid biopsy. How do we, how do we bring this all together? Do you think?
4: Yeah, these are great questions. Um, you know, I think if obviously a lot of bad things came out of the pandemic, a few good things came out, which is that it actually forced people who didn't normally work together from different fields to actually work together and integrate their resources and their skills. Around questions just like this, and you know, there were very few people. You know, Alison and, and folks were some of those few people who were looking at influenza and other viruses and their intersection with cardiovascular pathophysiology before the pandemic. And now, all of a sudden, you have a lot of people interested, which is a really good thing. And so, I, I think you know somebody who has uh, worked across you know mainly population, clinical, and some translational studies, and you know, so I'm always interested in what's going on in the sort of basic uh, physiology fields. That we don't always get to get a chance to intersect with. I've been thinking a lot, and my colleagues and I have been thinking a lot about how we need to prospectively be creating these cohorts of people who are enrolled and ready and willing to, when something new happens, when the next you know sort of a major exposure uh, happens to infiltrate our communities and, and cause issues like this, how we can start to collect samples and tissues and, and clinical data almost in real time in ways that haven't really been done before because most of our research is typically, as, as usual, sort of after the fact, trying to keep up with, you know, something like an evolving virus and evolving epidemic that then turned into pandemic, and, as it did in this case. If you look across the fields, there have been really, really valiant efforts to get post-mortem samples from the brain, from the heart, from uh, vascular tissues across multiple organ systems, they tend to be very small studies because in those cases you have to retrospectively get the consent for the autopsy, get the consent for the for the samples. I think we're in a better state than we were before in terms of understanding the importance of integrating efforts to try to get human uh, tissues and samples in as much as close as we can to real time to to essentially integrate research and findings along with the works that that's done in experimental. Animal models, uh, as was done here, so we can try to as fast as possible validate uh, some of these findings. In that way, figure out what the next best steps are. I
1: Feel like we we kind of were flat-footed somewhat in the preclinical sense, though. In that we had quick volunteers of willing vaccine testing, and people gave very generously of their tissues and samples. Preclinically, though, from the time the virus was sequenced, we weren't actuating preclinical drug testing. In fact, you know Paxlovid, for example, I think is a byproduct of fortune, that that there was companion animal veterinarians working on drug development for viruses, and and it just happened to translate over to humans. And maybe this is time for Glenn and and Allison to jump in and just, just scrum a little bit with us, but how do we better prepare our research capacity so that we could be informing clinicians, you know, if they say, hey, what about this drug? We should have been ready with two, three animal models in a level three facility to start looking at. Efficacy preclinically to inform these clinical trials, and I, I feel like only now are we playing catch up. Uh, what are your thoughts?
2: So I agree with what, what Susan has uh, said about you know forming these these relationships between the the different disciplines, and that it wasn't there. And I think um, a lot of that you know comes from so as a as a cardiologist, you know, we don't think about a lot of viruses and infections causing diseases. Certainly, we knew some there's a handful but it wasn't necessarily a, a common way to, to do this so we were probably caught flat-footed that there were so many cardiovascular complications here you know in retrospect we do know that there are some some issues you know influenza you get that your risk of cardiovascular disease or complications goes up but I wonder in retrospect how many of these viruses or bacteria or, or whatever infection you're talking about have very subtle effects on the cardiovascular system I mean SARS cov 2 seems to have a pretty big impact and so that's hard to overlook but someone gets infected with something it goes away five, 10 years later, somebody develops heart failure, that's very hard to connect, but that is the way in which heart failure develops. You know, there is a stimulus and it's it's quite distant. So I think looking at some of those things and considering that uh, more is certainly paramount. And I think having, you know, established these relationships, looking, uh, now collaborating with with people and, and, and looking into some of these things that hopefully we are now prepared so we don't have to start from scratch and go, okay, who... Who works in this area? Who can I collaborate with? You know, What can we do? We we already have that. We know what people can do, what their limitations are, and we can you know, hit the ground running, I would hope, uh, going forward.
1: I think one of the hopes here, particularly from, from governments, is that we can offer them solutions much faster. My criticisms back to government is you don't build fundamental basic sciences in a year. You build them in 10 and 20 year epochs way outside their normal cycles of turnover. So I think we have to look at that too. Um, that's just my little opinion. It was interesting in your discussion, Glenn, you you mentioned lithium and GSK. And there was a recent linkage. And I think I shared this with a few people. If you follow me on Twitter or follow AJP, maybe I sent you a DM even if you're in the field. But they were looking at other neuromodulators, specifically SSRIs. And here again, we're, we're seeing this Another intersection of neuroendocrine and central peripheral nervous system and potentially even viral latency and virus latency interacting with other viruses, compounding the complexity of this. Any thoughts that anybody here wants to sort of discuss around, you know, how do we do lead development from molecular mechanisms of physiology to help stimulate preclinical and clinical trials?
2: So we did talk about lithium in in the paper because there are some observational studies Suggesting some positive effects. I don't want to overstate anything and have someone, you know, go out tomorrow and start taking this because they think it's going to protect them or, or um, you know, reverse effects or, or anything like that. So I'm, I'm not saying that. We didn't say that in in the paper. Um, but I I think what was interesting about this was you had a group of observational studies that showed that when People took lithium, and and for whatever reason, that some of the effects were mitigated. Maybe even infection was down. There there were some beneficial effects, and then we come along independently, doing a basic research study and look for targets. Not going into this looking for lithium targets, but finding you know targets like GSK3 and and seeing some changes that are consistent with what you see in the observational studies right that we see these changes that would be detrimental and cause issues and we know that in these observational studies when they block these pathways they saw some benefit and so i think this is where you now need these preclinical and basic research studies to come in and close that loop take the the compounds you're interested in whether it's lithium whether you know it's the, the other medications you've you've mentioned and apply them in the preclinical model and see what are they effective but also how are they working and that's where your basic researchers come in, because if, if we look at things and say, this is how the condition's developing, and your treatment is truly blocking these pathways, that's the most effective therapy. Or is it that the therapy is simply hiding or masking the effect? So we're losing sort of the symptoms, losing the things we can see, but underneath the disease or the, or the condition is, is still progressing. And so that's why I'm saying you need the basic researchers to come in and actually look at those mechanisms and say, you are knocking this out, or here are the pathways that are causing the condition. What do we have? What do we already have on the shelf, potentially, that's there that target these things? And then we go back to that preclinical model and say, well, if we put it in, can we stop it? And then does that have a, an impact? So you see these interactions. We talked about interactions between infectious disease groups and, and cardiologists, but now we need these interactions going from the bench all the way to the bedside or you know, the population medicine people observing things and seeing what patterns we see in populations. How does our basic research tie in with that? Is it consistent? Is it inconsistent? And should we be looking for something else? Yeah. And with so many
1: organ systems interacting here, you know, it's a really great point to make. This drug A might be really effective at limiting viral replication, but lends itself more susceptible to maybe an endothelial damage or cardiovascular damage. And so while we resolve the pulmonary ards more rapidly, we might be setting ourselves up for longer-term exacerbation of downstream or knock-on effects in the molecular signaling pattern. And only basic scientists can really answer that question because we can't go digging around in humans to answer these. So it's a really good point. Do you feel as a group that we're ready to start modeling some of these experiments now to either assess knock-on effects using Paxlovid or lithium or anything else to sort of inform the clinicians about what trials are are most likely to be rational? And likewise, can we start using these models as methods to assess vaccine efficacy in preventing some of these knock-on effects? Maybe there's better or, or less effective vaccines for preventing the secondary sequelae of inflammatory and molecular patterns.
4: I would personally love to see a kind of new paradigm for how we design studies and get them approved for implementation because, you know, up to now, we're still stuck in the old paradigm of the clinical researchers need to do their studies this way, get approval from, you know, the IRB and then sort of like once they hit go, they can't really change protocol. They're, you know, this idea of an adaptive trial design is still a new idea. It's very rare and it's still sort of wrought with logistical challenges. And this idea that, you know, separately in another world, in another sphere, you know, we're doing experimental studies in, in, in model organisms and the ability to really sort of, you know, cross-talk. I, I would love to see one day a paradigm where we propose to both the IRB and I cook at the same time, parallel study designs across, you know, humans and model organ system, model systems, including that cover, you know, all the organ systems that might be affected by a particular exposure. And there's a therapeutic and you know that therapeutic is essentially tested in a way where there's crosstalk with respective results being analyzed at each step. And you can, obviously, we need to be pre-specified. Uh, you know, milestones. The results from each different part of the project. You know, talk get a chance to sort of you know talk to each other. We're not there yet, but I, I think that this, if if anything, this pandemic has has pushed us to understand that we need to be much much more integrated than we ever have been. Grant mechanisms are designed to still have these multi-part but siloed project activities you've got a population science project over here a clinical science one over here a basic science one over here they're still happening separately they're all part of the same maybe a project grant but they're not actually happening sort of together in in real time and uh, we try to do that you know <laughs> we try to force that activity to happen but because it's not so sort of the norm you know, I would love to see that actually take place at some point over, over time in the field, and maybe we're the ones to push it. But if the government or agencies that sponsor research also are helping to push you know, more integrative science, uh, I think that could only be better for the field.
2: And think about how much money that would save. We're, all, we're always talking about you know, more money for, for research and more investment, but if we keep going in these siloed ways, these very linear ways, you know, we get all the way to the end and then discover things that that didn't work or, or systems that we didn't consider. You know, I'm a cardiologist, so I consider the heart, but I never considered what was going on in the kidneys, right? So I get all the way to the end and then someone comes along and says, oh, but in the kidney, you know, your drug is very bad. And so now we end up backpedaling and losing, you know, those resources that governments, charities, whoever has invested in and had we been communicating and been supported uh, along the way, we would have saved money in the long run. So instead of having two parallel projects, you know, we have one integrative project that costs less, and quite frankly, will probably lead to things a lot faster because we're not backtracking at, at any point. You know, while we we want more money for research, we always ask for, for more money. I think this is a great place to show that there's some efficiencies where we could make that money uh, go a lot further if you know governments, charities, or whatever were to invest in those systems.
1: Now, Allison, you're in a node called VIDO that sort of is optimally being set up for that transition. Do you do you see a future for this?
3: Uh, so it's quite interesting to hear this conversation because I feel that, um, and maybe it's my discipline looking at how emerging viruses or circulating endemic viruses are causing pathogenesis. I really bridge that preclinical to clinical space and I'm always interested in all the organs. So, you know, I completed the ferret study before I even had contact with Glenn and I had taken the heart because I was interested and, in, you know, I'm, we call us bugs in body researchers. And that's what we do. We look at all the organs, see where the pathogenesis is with that understanding that um, even though this is respiratory virus, it's new and uncharacterized, I want to know where it is everywhere. And then also flip side, once we've characterized the pathogenesis in the preclinical model, I need to start evaluating vaccines and antivirals. So I need to know what is the effect all over the body there. So it's interesting to hear that other disciplines don't take that approach so much. And I feel that we do in my space to a certain extent. I really appreciated the comment about designing preclinical studies with the clinical trials. I don't exactly do that, but I do always try to have a way to extrapolate what i'm finding preclinically to the human condition so i know that there's impact and one of the best examples that i have of that right now is my one year hamster study where i infected hamsters with SARS-CoV-2 followed them for an entire year to see what the pathogenesis was both in um the respiratory tract as well as extrapulmonary at the same time set up a human study to look at long covid where we've recruited 200 people both people who feel they recovered from covid-19 people who feel they have long covid and then people who at the time didn't have covid so i was trying to see what i'm seeing in the animal model especially that initial finding where we saw microthrombi in in the heart is this what's driving long COVID in people? It was such a huge question for me and why I wanted to have that parallel human study and then also continue my investigations out for an entire year. I feel that, yeah, I think Vito is a good place for that, but I don't know if it's just because that's just what we inherently do in both wanting to model human disease and um, our ties to developing and evaluating therapeutics, or if we're a unique space. I don't know the answer to that, but I'm kind of excited to hear that other people are interested in moving to this area. And I Really, my career is made with collaborations because when a new virus emerges, I'm not an expert in the heart. I had to reach out to people to help me because, oh, there's a little bit of viral RNA here. Um, what's going on? As well as the kidney, and I have some neurological friends as well. So I really appreciate collaborations and perhaps the potential of where we go from here.
1: I think you just nailed it you know this pick up the paper give it a read if you're listening if you haven't already read it and remember this there is power in observation collaboration and when it comes to bugs and bodies it's physiology so thank you all so so much for jumping on the call today dr allison kelvin dr susan chang dr glenn Pyle, uh corresponding author on the article i wish i'd keep talking about this because i think there's so much more to discuss around sars cov and the COVID pandemic and how it's been impacting all of us. But thank you. Thank you for your time.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the AJP Heart and Circ podcast. Our theme music was written and performed by Ray Mitchell. Catch the latest episodes of our podcast at physiology.org journal slash AJP Heart.